Thank you, Tom. Allow me to pray. We'll dismiss the children. Um, where they will be instructed and opportunity to play as well. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that these uh, words that we've read, or Tom read, would not simply be words. Father, I pray that the story that we have probably heard on several occasions would not simply be old and boring, but I pray that you would cause them to come to life and we would recognize yet again what you have done for us and ultimately for your glory. So we ask that um, you would speak to us this morning. I also ask that you'd speak to our children. I pray that your word would sink deep in their souls, would be planted there, and it would grow, and it would, and it would sprout, and it would flourish. And, and Father, I pray that not one of them would be lost. I pray this, Lord, that you would protect and draw each of them to yourself. Jesus, um, we love you, and thank you for your love for us. In your name we pray, amen. Parents, you can take your children downstairs if you would like, or they're welcome to stay with us as well. This morning we're beginning a, a very short series looking at the Gospel of John. Um, chapters 18, 19, and 20 uh, as we move towards Easter. And, and my hope is that we would see who Jesus is and what Jesus has done uh, yet again and uh, with fresh eyes. The text we read really begins with the, um, the trial of Jesus before Pilate, the Roman ruler in the area of Judea. And just prior to that, Jesus is actually on trial before Annas, the former high priest, and then Caiaphas, the current high priest. And it's in that context that Peter, his beloved or his disciple, betrays or denies Jesus um, three times, just as Jesus had predicted. But what I'd like to do this morning is not so spend so much time in the passage that Tom read for us. I'd like you to think on those words and reread those words in the coming days and weeks. But I'd like to set up this, this series by looking closely at verses 1 through 11 of chapter 18. And so if you would allow me to read those 11 verses and then we will dive into who Jesus is and what Jesus did. When Jesus had spoken these words, He went out with His disciples across the brook Kidron where there was a garden which He and His disciples entered. 
Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. And so Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am He, so if you seek Me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that He had spoken, of those whom you gave Me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Melchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given Me? Let's pray. Lord, You know better than I, but I'm just an Elroy. And You are the Creator of the heavens and the universe. Father, it is true that my hands and my heart and my mind is stained with sin. And yet, Father, because of your incredible grace, it's been cleansed. I've been cleansed. And in your sight, I'm a new creation. But Lord, with, with those things in mind, Father, I, I, I recognize that, that if I speak, we're in trouble. And so I pray that you would speak this morning. That Your Spirit would speak to us and touch us in a way that only You can. And that Your Word would not return empty, Father. In Your precious name I pray. Amen. This morning I just simply want to answer two questions. Who is Jesus and what has Jesus done? And we're going to get our stuff from here, so it's not going to be exhaustive, but we're going to find it in these first 11 verses. And I think that sets up the stage for the next three weeks. Who is Jesus? And what has this Jesus done? Now, to set the table, let's take a look closely at those first few verses. So when Jesus had spoken these words, what words? Chapter 17 of the book of John, Jesus is actually praying. It's a beautiful prayer. And in that beautiful prayer, Jesus prays for His disciples and He prays for us. Yeah, yeah, us. Right here. But I, I think He's also talking about when Jesus has spoken these words, He's also alluding to the words found in chapter 14, 15, and 16 where He's speaking to His disciples words of comfort knowing that He will soon be gone. And so He tells them, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And He tells them things like, I'm going to not leave you as orphans, but I will send you a comforter, the Spirit of God, who will dwell and live among you. 
And those words continue to be a comfort for us as a church. But they had to be powerful, comfortable words for His disciples in those early days after Jesus' death and then as they go off to serve Him. Now we're told after he had spoken these words, he, he goes with his disciples across the brook Kidron. So in, in Jerusalem in those days, I believe to the east, they would was the brook Kidron. But you literally would have to go down a very steep embankment to get down to this garden, to this brook, where there was a grove of trees. The word Kidron actually means a place of mourning. It was the very place where David, that's how David escaped Jerusalem when his son Absalom was going to take over the kingdom. And that's the place where Jesus goes to pray, the Garden of Gethsemane. Now Judas knew about this place because Judas often went to this place with the disciples and with Jesus, we're told in verse 2. And then in verse 3, we're told who are the characters, who shows up at this event One is Judas, and the other is this band of soldiers and some officers, verse 3, from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. A band of soldiers, they would have been Roman soldiers. A band of soldiers was literally a thousand soldiers. Now, some scholars think that could have been down, whittled down to about 600, maybe 400. But get the picture. This is not two or three soldiers coming with Judas. This is an army. Now you go, why did they need such an army to go after Jesus? Uh, the, The Romans were worried about riots, and riots were a problem in places like Judea. And so they liked to flex their muscle, show their strength. A number of years ago, Lynn and I were in, in New York City. It was a Sunday afternoon, and we were on one of those double-decker buses touring the city. And, um, and all of a sudden, we went, went through the spot where there was a big traffic jam because there was literally two, cities, two streets, city, city blocks, that's what I'm trying to say, of um, police cars hitting their sirens all, all at the same time. And, and after they had done their, we were like, what's going on? What's, what's happening? And And the guy on the bus, the tour guide, simply said, um, the police in New York City likes to flex their muscle every once in a while to show that they are strong and that you can't get away with anything there. The Romans were similar. And so whether it's 400, 600, or 1,000, you get the picture. There's a large army there Along with this large army is some officers. These would be police, temple police, likely Jews, that would have also come with. And so there's, there's quite, and, and, and they've got these lanterns, so it's, the place is now lit up, and they also have their weapons. Now, along with that group, we see Judas is there. Th- this is significant. Here's Jesus, and he's in a garden, and and there's this great throng, this great army that's coming to take him. 
And in the average person, no matter how daring and strong they might be, I would think that would create fear in them. But along with that, you have Judas, who is Jesus' trust, Jesus' friend, his disciple for three years. Jesus invests in him, all the while knowing what he's going to do. And here comes Judas, according to one of the other Gospels, tell, he plants a, a, a kiss, a holy kiss, on, or maybe not so holy, on Jesus' cheek. And so in one moment, you would think in that context, not only would you you'd have a, a, this, this incredible fear, but you would have this incredible heartache. That's the stage that is set up in verses 1 through 3. Now, as we move forward, I want you to stop and pause and think, what does our text say about Jesus? Who is He? Then in verse 4, we said, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to Him. Don't, don't just read over words in, in, in Scripture. Every word counts. Knowing all that would happen to Him. In the Gospel of John, you, you have these moments where Jesus shows His all-knowingness. Is that, is that a way to say it? Remember, he says, I saw you, Nathaniel, under the fig tree when he wasn't there, chapter 1. In John chapter 4, he knows about the Samaritan woman and all of her extramarital affairs. Throughout the Gospels, he continually and over uh, often, at least on three occasions, we know that he, he, he unpacks for his disciples that he will be crucified. Our text says that he knew all that would happen to him. It, it reminds me of Psalm 139. O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Who is this man, Jesus? He knows all. But, but, but let's carry on. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to Him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? To me, I find this fascinating. If that was Elroy, he would be hiding. But Jesus steps forward forward as if he says bring it on whom do you seek and and and, and he, he asked that twice I, I think this is significant because again as you go through the gospel of john you hear jesus saying things such as john chapter 7 verse 30 listen to what jesus says So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him 
because his hour had not yet come. And, and then as you move on to John chapter 10, listen to these words, verse 17. For this reason the Father lays, loves me because I, Jesus, lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And then in John chapter 13, and verse 1, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, He, he knew it's just right before the feast, and Jesus knows that it's, this is the hour, and then listen to how Jesus prays in John 17, verse 1. And when Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You since You have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom You have given Him. You see, when Jesus steps forward and says, Whom are You seeking? He's basically saying, The hour that My Father set It's here. It's time. And it's time for me to glorify my Father. You see, as I read this, this is not just a, this is not just a man. There, there, there's something more to this man. Our author wants us to see that. Now read verse 5. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Who were they looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. Some think that this might have been actually derogatory because Nazareth was uh, a, a little podunk town that nobody cared about. It, it, it may actually kind of speak to the... Um, the sarcasm, the derogatory words that they would often use of Jesus. Uh, l listen to this in chapter 8, verse 41. They said to Him, to Jesus, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one Father, even God. And in that context, uh, the, the, I think the religious leaders are going, uh, we know that you, Mary was pregnant before you guys were married. And even when he's in his 30s, this is still following him. And so when they say we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, they're thinking we're looking for somebody who's not that significant. Who is this man? Who is this man who knows all things? Who is this man that boldly surrenders? Who is this man from Nazareth? Well, this man will speak. Quite frankly, in our short little passage, he declares his deity in a way that's quite astounding. Jesus said to them, I am he. Now, now our author actually will say that a second time, and then he will say that Jesus says it a second time. So we have that phrase, I am he, three times in this short little passage. What, why is that significant? Well, in the Gospel of John, those words, I am, are incredibly significant. We see it over and over and over again. In John chapter 8, for example, 
we hear Jesus say these words. John 8, verse 57. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Their response, so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Why were they so angry? Why did they want to stone him? Because Jesus simply said, before Abraham was, I am. Now, either Jesus is a nut job, crazy, or, or that's true. But when he says, before Abraham was, he doesn't say before Abraham was, I was, as if he says before Abraham was, I is. I was, I am, and I will be, I am. And where does he get that language from? Exodus chapter 3, when, when Moses is, is says, who, who do I say sent me to the Israelites? God says to him, tell them, I am who I am. This is language that's filled in the Old Testament, it's particularly the way it's written in, in, the, uh, in the, the Greek translation. You find it often in the book of Isaiah. The last half of Isaiah, which quite frankly is all about the coming Messiah, which Jesus claims to be. So in Isaiah 41.10, one of my favorite passages that I have to quote constantly when I'm afraid, where, G, where the, where the uh, God says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That, that construction of that language in, in, chapter, in verse 10, Be not dismayed, for I am your God, is the same. It's written in the exact same way as Jesus when he says, I am. We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. I am. I am that one. I am your God. Or, or, or the language in chapter 43 of Isaiah, verse 10, where we read, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am He. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. And when Jesus says, I am He, He's going back there. Does that's me? Or chapter 43, verse 25. I, I am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Did you hear that? I, I am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Jesus wasn't just simply saying, I'm the guy you're looking for. Jesus was saying to them, I'm the God who created the heavens and the universe. I'm, I, I, I'm the one that you guys have been waiting for. I, I am the one who has come to blot out your transgressions and remember your sins no more. I, I am He. He declares that He is God. Who is this man 
This Jesus is none other than God Himself. But did you notice as we read that, that there's this little strange phrase in verse 6 where John, I think he's, he's remembering what happened and probably in the midst of all the chaos he didn't think much about it, but now that he's reflecting upon it and writing the words down, he's kind of amazed and he simply just simply says, when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, we're not talking about five or six soldiers. We're talking about an army of at least 400 plus others. They've got the weapons. They've got the torches. Jesus and His band has a sword. His name is Peter. He's got the sword. They're kind of outnumbered. And our text says, when Jesus said to them, I am He, they drew back and fell to the ground. I don't think that was willingly. That's the same reaction John will have later when he sees, when he sees Jesus in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And then we have this incredible description of Jesus Christ. And in verse 17, And when I saw Him, I fell at His feet as though dead. And stop for a minute. This is the beloved disciple who literally laid his head upon the breast of Jesus at the Last Supper. He was that close to Christ. But when he sees Jesus in all His glory, what does he do? He falls down as if he is dead. And what happens in chapter 18 is for a moment, Jesus not only declares His glory, but He displays that He is God. This army has no control of Jesus. As Jesus said, as, as He said to Pilate, you know what? You would have no authority over Me at all unless it had been given you from above. Jesus steps up and says, who are you looking for? And then Jesus says, I'm God. And then they fall on their faces. I don't know how long that was, but it seems like it was only momentarily. But I think God just was like, okay, I want you to understand who you're dealing with. Obviously, they didn't get it. So who is this man? more than a man this is God when you think of the Easter story don't ever forget who goes to that cross don't ever forget don't ever forget who was arrested. Don't ever forget who was mocked and spit upon and beaten. This was not an insurrectionist like Barabbas. This is the great I am who I am.
And what does Jesus do? There's lots of things Jesus does, but our passage, I think, points out a couple things. Notice in verse 8, Jesus answered, I told you that I am He, so that if you seek Me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that He had spoken, that Jesus had said. When did Jesus say this? Well, just go back a few page, a page or so, John 17, in Jesus' prayer. John 17, verse 10, All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that would be Judas, the Scripture might be fulfilled. So Jesus is praying to His Father and says, I'm, I'm, I'm coming to You. Oh Lord, would You keep the ones that You've given Me? Because I've kept them, now will You keep them? This is language that comes straight out of John chapter 6. Listen to the words of Jesus in verse 36 of John chapter 6. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Did you hear those words? In Western evangelicalism, and I don't think this was always the case, but it is the case in our, in our Christianity today, we have placed the accent on God choosing, um, on us choosing God or us deciding to, to follow God. And I think that emphasis comes from not from the Scriptures, but from the world around us. That says you can be whatever you want to be. You can do whatever you want to do. Now don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that we don't respond to God. But what I'm saying is, in the Scriptures, over and over and over and over and over again, the emphasis and the accent is upon God choosing us. Ephesians chapter 1. Before the foundations of the world, He chose us. Romans chapter 9, before we did anything good or bad, He chose us. That's what the text says. And Romans 6, Jesus over and over and over again says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Or it's the same, it's the same chapter which says that no one comes to the Father unless no one comes to Him except the Father draws them. And that's, this is important for a number of reasons. But one of those reasons is found in John chapter 6. You see, if God is the one doing the calling and the choosing, then we're safe. If it's up to Elroy, we're in trouble. Because I'm like the disciples. One minute I'm choosing Him and one minute I'm not choosing Him. No, 
I don't understand how all that works, but I know where the accent and the emphasis needs to be placed. And when we place it there, God gets all the glory. And we will be raised on the last day. Now, that doesn't mean we don't pray that the lost won't come to know Jesus. We're called to be on our faces crying out, God, would you save That doesn't mean we don't proclaim the gospel because that's what we're called to do. We don't understand understand how this works, but we know that that's what the text says. And so, so what did Jesus do? He kept Peter. He kept him. In fact, elsewhere it tells us that Jesus says, uh, Peter, uh, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you. But Satan could not take him because he was the Lord's. What did Jesus do? He kept the beloved disciple John who's writing these words even though he would live to a ripe old age but suffer much. He kept each one of these and and eventually his father would keep each one of these. That's what he said. So what does Jesus do? He keeps his own. He keeps his own. That should encourage us. It should humble us. It should amaze us. But what else does Jesus do? Look at the last verse, verse 11. You know, Peter just strikes off this guy's ear. We're told elsewhere that Jesus heals this guy's ear. But in verse 11, so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? What's he talking about there? Obviously the cross. Absolutely. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Throughout the Old Testament, this idea of cup is seen as God's judgment or God's wrath. So for example, Isaiah 51 verse 7, listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people, uh, sorry, 51 verse, hmm. I wrote down the wrong verse. Ah, 17, wake yourself up, wake yourself up. Stand, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the the cup of His wrath. It's the language we find in the book of Revelation in chapter 14. So just just in case you think the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament, you don't, don't think that. Revelation chapter 14. Verses 9 and 10, we read these words, And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships a beast in its image and receives a mark on the forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And so when Jesus says, Shall I not drink the cup? father has given me Jesus is simply saying to Peter I've come for this I'm the God who created the heavens and the universe 
I'm the God who was, who is, and always will be. That's who I am. And I'm the God who has come to drink the judgment, the wrath that the Father should be placing upon us and upon you, Peter. And I'm drinking it on your behalf. Who is this Jesus? He boldly goes, surrenders. He, 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 who is this Jesus? He's the one who knows all. Who is this Jesus? He's from Nazareth. But He declares His deity and He displays His deity. And, and what has this Jesus done? What does He do? He keeps His own. And He's drunk the cup. You know, when we go to the table, we don't see the cup in the same way, do we? We see a cup as resembling His blood that, that, that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Uh, if you're like me, you don't have to look too far back in your history, like two minutes ago, <laughs> and think of what God has forgiven you from. cup Jesus drank was the wrath that we should have drank. But every, every week we come to, an, to the table and we, 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 we dip into another cup that reminds us of His love. That's why the story of Good Friday and Easter Sunday is the prevailing story of the, the church. That's why every Sunday we look to Jesus because when we see what he's, who He is and what He's done, it, it should just convince us. Okay, Lord, I, I, I ought to listen to You today. Forgive me. Thank You. Wow, You're amazing. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank You. Thank You that You are the I am He. I thank you that you are the, the I am that has come to blot out our transgressions and remember our sins no more. I thank you that you are not simply the God of wrath, but you are the God who graciously offers us an alternative to put our trust and our faith in your Son. Father, this morning, and tomorrow morning, and Tuesday morning, and Wednesday night, and Thursday morning, and Friday afternoon, and Saturday evening, Lord, I pray that we would just be overwhelmed by who You are and what You've done. And that we would worship You all week. And that You would be our first love all week. And that You would be our focus all week. Then when we get back here next week, Lord, that we go, oh, I want to hear again who You are and what You've done. And so, Lord, do that in us for Your glory because of Your mercy. In Your name we pray. Amen. We conclude every Sunday around the table.